They're found only in First and Second Timothy and Titus. They're called the faithful sayings. That doesn't mean that whatever is found in the New Testament can't be depended upon. It's not reliable. Just the opposite. But Paul, writing to young preachers, especially Timothy and Titus, wanted to underline, to put in bold, to really emphasize and stress certain truths, and those truths are ones that we would be exceptionally blessed to apply and think about ourselves. When we look at the faithful sayings, they will encourage your heart greatly and challenge your soul. There are five of them. We're going to look at one tonight. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. The first of the faithful sayings is found in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. Since there's five in all, there'd be four more that you could find throughout the rest of 1 Timothy. There was one in 2 Timothy, and there is one in the book of Titus. So 3-1-1 to get the whole number of these faithful sayings that are, again, statements of emphasis, statements to really think about and grasp. 1 Timothy 1-15, here's how it reads. Faithful is the saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Let's look at the immediate context of this faithful saying. The immediate context really begins in verse 12. In verse 12. And if you take notes or mark in your Bibles, think about this. Humble gratitude. Verse 12 of 1 Timothy 1 is about humble gratitude. I thank the Lord Jesus Christ. And then three items for which he's thankful are mentioned. That he gave me strength. I thank the Lord Jesus He gave me strength. Ephesians 6 and verse 10, His strength was in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, you think about Paul's strength, and he's an apostle. He has the ability to uh, perform miracles because of the Holy Spirit being in him in a miraculous way. These are gifts that we may not share, but we do also have in common the fact that the Lord strengthens us. And for that, we ought to be profoundly grateful, and we're in desperate need of it. Look at the second item for which he's thankful. That he judged or counted me worthy. That is no small matter. He judged, he counted me worthy. And really what the thought is, we got a row and a half of Mayfields tonight, but Wes, what the thought is with Paul is is this. Of all the people in the world, I can't believe that Paul would have 
that God would consider me, Paul, to be up to this task. And he did. It's very humbling, humble gratitude. In his case, serving as an apostle, not simply as a Christian, but as an apostle too. God, in his great plan, who would have thought that we could be the ones that would be saved, forgiven, blessed, to know grace? Keep looking at the passage. I thank the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, humble gratitude. He appointed me to ministry. The word there, maybe you have service, but it's the word that we typically use for the normal service of the Lord, ministry. He appointed me for ministry. He gave me a task, a work in His kingdom. Humble gratitude. Now look at the next verse. Verse 13. Because we're leading up to verse 15 and all the things that are around it. But let's look a little bit more at this immediate context. Verse 13, if verse 12 is about what? Humble gratitude. Verse 13 is about honest assessment. And he says three things about himself. He'd mentioned three areas that he was thankful for God and his blessing. Now he talks about himself and mentions three things. Before, I was a blasphemer, he says. Do you see it in verse 13? The word literally means I spoke against God. Before I was a Christian, I spoke against Jesus. And the idea is not only did he speak against Jesus himself, but one of the things he did according to Acts 26 verses 9 and 11 was try to cause Christians to blaspheme Jesus too. Imagine making the confession that Jesus is the Son of God and then taking it back. Well, Paul tried to get people to do just that before he became a Christian. Notice that the text goes not only from his words, blasphemer, but to his actions. Think about that, Cody. I was a persecutor. That's what he says. I was a persecutor. Maybe we, you know, we, we knew that Paul persecuted the church and that he was party to the death of Stephen and things like that before he became a Christian. But sometimes we really don't get it as, as true and as full as it was. Paul speaks of himself as a blasphemer, and knowing Paul's personality, do you think he was a half-hearted blasphemer? As a persecutor, do you think that he was just hitting on a few cylinders? I think he was giving it everything he got, everything he had. It talks about his persecution of the church. It says he made havoc of the church in the King James Version, Acts 8, verses 1 through 4. It says that not only did he make havoc of the church, but he was guilty of persecuting Jesus as he persecuted what belonged to Jesus, his people. Acts 9, verses 4 through 6. And if you're thinking about this, where he was, I was a blasphemer. 
I was a persecutor. My actions showed how against Jesus I was. Galatians 1.13 says, I sought to destroy the church. He sought to destroy it. But look at the third item. The third thing he says about himself and his past. And you'll see this here in verse 13. It says, I was an insolent A proud, humiliating type of person. That's the idea in the text. And really what it amounts to is this, Brother Campbell. Before he became a Christian and when he was persecuting the church, Paul got his jollies. He got his highs. He got his his enthusiasm. From speaking against Christ, from acting against Jesus, and thinking things that were against Christ. It's kind of like, if you really wanted to live for the moment, how can I humiliate Christians? What can I do to cast shame on the cause of this one that they call the Christ? And so what it involved were his words... His actions and his thoughts. Now I suspect there was no one here tonight that's anything like Saul was as far as being antagonistic to God and to God's people. But I suspect we all have said things that were against our Lord. We all have committed actions that were wrong and thinking that would be unbecoming. So we have something in common with this individual. Look at the next verse. Verse 14. Having indicated after these things, but I obtained mercy because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. The next verse, verse 14, can be headed as follows. You can give this heading to it. Divine initiative. Divine initiative. Here is initially humble gratitude for God and the things He's done in my life. Then there's an honest assessment of my life before I came to Jesus. Then there's divine initiative. And in the English Standard Version, from which I typically read in a a sermon setting or a class, it says the grace of God overflowed toward me. And here's the idea, like a parched desert, a land that is lacking moisture, a land that is lacking rainfall, the grace of God overflowed in my life. And in that barren soil where it was so hot and dusty, because of Jesus, because of the grace of God, faith and love were produced. Grace poured out. Faith and love result. Isn't that a pretty cool way of thinking about it? 
especially when you go back to just the last verse. What's the opposite of faith? Doubt and disbelief. What I did, I did in ignorance and unbelief. The opposite of love, hate. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor. I was violent and arrogant and proud of myself while I did these things. See the transformation. (laughs) The faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Now... We've worked our way from 12, 13, and 14. Consider verse 15 because now we come to this one, the faithful saying. Verse 12 is humble gratitude. Verse 13 is honest assessment of who I was and what I was like before Jesus. Verse 14 is the divine initiative in His grace and how it can produce faith and love in us. As we respond to the Lord. Now verse 15. Look at what's said. There are four truths mentioned in verse 15. Again, I'll quote the passage. Faithful is the saying, worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He is making sure that this arrests our attention, that it grips us. Get this. It's so important, Timothy, and people need to know this. Its content is true. The content of the gospel is true. Faithful is the saying. It's reliable The message is true. It's not a fabrication. It's not speculation like some people were getting involved in in 1 Timothy chapter 1 elsewhere. The gospel is true. Its content is true. That's the first truth. That's why men like Paul were willing to die if necessary for the truth of the gospel. Secondly, the offer of the gospel is universal. Look at the statement. And worthy of all acceptance. The message is true, and the message really ought to be received, embraced by everybody. The offer is universal. It's to everybody. Jesus would say, to you who labor and are heavy laden... Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, and 29. The Bible would say elsewhere, Whosoever will, let him come. Revelation 22 and verse 17. The truth of the gospel is universal. People can embrace it and be saved by it. Look at the third truth, and here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners, the theme of the gospel is Jesus. The theme of the gospel is Jesus. His very name means Savior. When we call Him Jesus Christ, Savior and Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One, Christ Jesus 
The text says he came into the world. God came down. That's the incarnation. God came into the world to save. He is the Savior. He brings salvation. God came into the world to save sinners. That's what the text says. A universal offer for a universal problem. Sin. Now look at this fourth truth. Of whom I am chief. The gospel's application is personal. While the offer is universal, the application of it is personal. And what that means is this. My children and grandkids can't be saved on the basis of what Cherie and I have done. They may be influenced for good or for bad, but they cannot be saved based on what we have done. But they will be saved or lost based on how they respond to the truth of the gospel. Its application is personal. Of whom I am chief. I am foremost. It's personal. What we do with the gospel. Or fail to do with it. Others, our elders... Lynn and Terry, they may have some influence and they care for our souls, but we have to make the decisions to come to the Lord and be faithful to Him. Of whom I am chief, its application is personal. Now Paul would say on one occasion, I am the least of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 and 9. He would say that I am less than the least of all the saints. Ephesians 3 and verse 8. But here he says, I am chief and catch it. Steve, he doesn't say I was the chief of sinners. It doesn't say that, does it? Of whom I am chief. This faithful saying causes us to look at the Lord, our Savior, and what He did for us at the cross, to vision that, to envision that in our mind, and to look at our sin, and to see things as they are. And what we are tempted to do, Jack, is compare ourselves. And you may look way better than me when you compare yourself to me. But Paul refuses to engage in comparison. Paul realizes he is a redeemed Sinner. He is a redeemed sinner. Bought and paid for by Jesus. And the song is right. I am mine no more. I am mine no more. 
Remember what Jesus did in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, the story, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. In Luke 18, 9 through 14, you've got the, the, the Pharisee that is so into himself and what he does, and he's all about comparing himself to how much better he is to the tax collector. Remember the story? But the tax collector would not get in to the comparing himself with others game. And he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Isn't that exactly what Paul's doing? Because when we compare ourselves to others, that's, that's a flawed view in the first place. Ultimately, as people who have violated the will of God, we have to look at the cross and look at our sin. And that's what Paul's doing. Of whom I am chief. It's as if there's not another person that's lived. He did what he did for me, the sinner, and how grateful I am. Now notice verses 16 and 17. And if you like to do things like I do in working your way through this, I would give the heading to verses 16 and 17, Awesome God. Awesome God. You look at verse 12 and what was it? Humble gratitude. Verse 13 was what? Honest assessment. Verse 14 was what? Divine initiative. Verse 15, faithful saying, Get this, really get it. Verses 16 and 17, awesome God, because the passage deals with the patience of God. It deals with the glory of God and the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, that He is King. When Paul started thinking about salvation... He often immediately went into praise. And so should we. So should we. Our God is an awesome God. Have you come to Him in faith and repentance and baptism? Have you responded to His grace in Jesus? And has that grace caused you to be a person of faith and love? In Christ. I hope that you'll come to Jesus if you haven't. In the Bible way. The only way to really be right with God. And if you are a Christian. It's great to think about the fact that this expression is used nowhere else in all the New Testament. Except 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus. Five times in all. And any time you see it mentioned, maybe you'll want to look for the other four references. Like I said, three are found in 1 Timothy, one in 2 Timothy, one in Titus. I guarantee you, when you think about them, you'll be encouraged in your heart and challenged in your soul. Let's stand and sing.